0: Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 20th year on the air here at FM 91.3 WQLN NPR. Today, a very special guest for a whole lot of reasons. Robert Chatfield is my guest today. And he serves as president and chief executive officer of the Free to Choose Network. Now, we're going to rewind the tape, so to speak. Your predecessor and one of the founders of WQLN was Bob Chittister.
1: Absolutely correct. He was the man who is responsible for WQLN.
0: Yeah. And of course, your organization, which is titled Free to Choose. The Free to Choose Network is the correct name?
1: Absolutely, and it's uh, named after Free to Choose, the 10-hour PBS series produced by Bob Chittister in 1980 uh, featuring Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman that really changed the world.
0: Hey, could you go into that a little bit and how you got involved and, and how you learned about a Free to Choose? Uh, dumb luck, Tom. Thanks for asking, <laughs> though. <laughs> okay, so much for the long answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. The uh, uh, Honestly, uh, I actually saw something on LinkedIn in about the free to choose network and when I saw free to choose I thought oh this must be Milton Friedman and I reached out just to uh, learn more about the organization and Mr. Chittister said when can you get here and that is really how the entire thing started and uh, the reason I have the job Bob tells me is, is because nobody else had done all the reading for the last 25 years.
0: Robert <laughs> you and Bob are spoiling the program with one sentence answers. Uh, we're going to have to elaborate on a couple more things <laughs> here but he goes back to 1970 When he got involved with Milton Friedman, how did that all come about?
1: It was actually a a response to a 13-hour series that aired on PBS called The Age of Uncertainty. And that 13-hour series uh, featured uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and Bob thought that there should be some response to it. And at the time, the chairman for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was somebody out of the University of Rochester named Alan Wallace. Alan Wallace happened to be a contemporary of Milton Friedman's at the University of Chicago. And he said, Bob, if you want to do this, I I know just the guy to do this and it's Milton Friedman, but you're also going to have to persuade his wife, Rose, because uh, Mm -hmm. otherwise they're not going to do the program. And Bob reached out to Milton. They got along famously. And uh, Bob Chittister tells this wonderful story where he told Milton, he says, Milton, I've never done anything of this type whatsoever (laughs) before in terms of a 10-hour series. He had produced stuff for WQLM, but it was just, you know, small programs and local-type programs. He says, I've never done anything like this. He says, but I'll tell you, I'll be able to get your ideas across. While they got into the project, at some point, Milton got this surprise call from PBS. And, and they suggested that maybe Milton would want to do this program, that they'd have just the producers for him at uh, one of the big stations, uh, mm. you know, in, in Washington, D.C. or New York City. And uh, Milton responded to the person. He says, you know, Bob Chittister said you'd say just that. I think I'll go with Bob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could write this biography in about three paragraphs so far. So
1: that's great.
0: Yeah. yeah, but that's an absolute coup for Bob Chittister to be involved with Milton Friedman. Had he ever told you any stories about uh, Milton. I'm sure they got to know each other very, very, very well.
1: Bob said that he had the longest postdoctoral dissertation uh, experience with Milton Friedman because they became lifelong friends afterwards. And Bob would go to see Milton probably, oh, if not four times a year, then six times a year. Uh, They'd go out to dinner. uh, Bob would pepper him with questions. Milton's ever the teacher and ever the salesman. And he was very uh, patient in terms of uh, teaching Bob. Uh, We still have, to this day, supporters of our organization organization support us because they went out to some of these dinners with with Bob and Milton and more than one person said that uh, they either changed their life or changed the lives of their their offspring we have one person whose son didn't know what he was going to do for a career met Milton Friedman and is now an economist
0: unbelievable story and one story after another these little vignettes turn into certainly a lifelong book now your organization is mm, not doing the math 77 to
1: current when did you get there uh, I've been there for six years now, so okay. for us it'd be 2017.
0: And to let people know, relative to Erie, Pennsylvania, WQLN headquartered in Erie, Pennsylvania, your organization is headquartered here. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Still, we've got about 20 employees still based out of Erie, Pennsylvania. I always like to say, uh, if uh, you know, we could do this anywhere. Why not in Erie? So.
0: Excellent. And of course, it matches with Bob Chittister's history with the city here. He was an outstanding producer, but as you said, he almost uh, bootstrapped himself, just pulled himself by his ankles uh, upward and produced these outstanding
1: programs. It's it's actually very impressive. The number of times Bob told me that, uh, you know, they weren't certain where payroll was going to come from next, but boy, they were going to continue plowing along. Bootstrapping is a very, very great phrase for what Bob did with the organization. So
0: this is a 30-year-plus success story, success story of those belong to you. Do you travel around the country? Let's ask that question. And then let's ask about some of the projects that you work on.
1: I probably spend 200 nights a year in a hotel, Tom. Wow. And we are a national organization. We're an international distribution organization. And we we raise money all over the United States primarily, but we also have some uh, international donors. I rarely go overseas in terms of going to look for funding, but our funding comes from mostly entrepreneurs, Business people, those who uh, uh, have the same philosophy as Milton Friedman that if you're free to choose, you're probably going to be happier and healthier and wealthier than than those people who can't. We also yeah. get foundation support, and that helps a lot with uh, with some of the bigger projects. Uh, but as I said, most uh, we we do not solicit nor accept government funding. Everything we do is is me going out there still bootstrapping. If I sometimes yeah. I don't even know where the next payroll is coming from. <laughs> I like to joke that one. I I'm usually I'm usually five or six months ahead, so I, I I'm better than not knowing what next week's going to look like. But it's uh it, you know our board of trustees is very adamant that we are not going to have an endowment. We're not going to be fat and lazy. We're not going to sit around having money in an account that we just draw off of. If we can't survive in the marketplace, then we shouldn't uh, survive. And vice versa, if somebody donates money to us, we should put that money to use as quickly as we possibly can, because that's why the person gave us the money.
0: So free to choose network is actually um, not only a global media 501C3, but you have little divisions here. One of these happens to be free to choose media. How Mm -hmm. does that work?
1: So Free to Choose Media is what I'll call the film production studio. And Mm -hmm. that's uh, that's that's the genesis and the basis for all the stuff that we do produce. Uh, That's where uh, that is our production arm for public television Uh, so that your listeners will know we uh, PBS does not hire us. We have to go out. I I come up with the concept. Mm -hmm. I go raise the money and then we pitch it to get it onto public television. So we, we have to get distributed through public television, but they, they don't pay us money. They don't come to us and ask us to produce for them. It's really our concept. The most recent, two, we have a uh, one-hour program that just appeared in July on WQLN, and that was called We Hold These Truths About the Declaration of Independence.
0: That was a phenomenal program, is a phenomenal program. It and still I, is. Oh, and I want to use that phrase. They all are. You have... Over 500 hours of documentary, and you're still using the word film. I'm impressed with that. Uh, Yeah, thank you. You start off with film, and of course, technology has taken over. But a lot of these programs, if not all of them, are still available. Am
1: I right? Every, everything, uh, with the exception of when we have to give an exclusive uh, time period to public television, mm-hmm. we make everything available on our website, free to choose network.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all the broadcast programs, all the programs we did for something called the Idea Channel, anything that we uh, have produced is available at no cost. Anybody can download it and watch. Or I should say, anybody can stream and watch, not download.
0: With that, there are television programs, there's podcasts, some web content. And how do you keep all that going? Uh, you mentioned you had about 20, maybe 30 people.
1: Are these folks
0: the ones that keep it running?
1: I was gonna say so yeah we uh, all the stuff is uh, still you know don't tell anybody you know you know we still keep all of our uh, digital files right here in Erie Pennsylvania Tom okay yes. so at, at corporate headquarters there's uh, stacks of uh, <laughs> literally stacks of drives that contain all of our programs on there we upload things obviously to YouTube to Vimeo so we you know in terms of where the uh, uh, the video products are actually available people are pulling those things off of the web but we literally store hard drives of Everything that we have in Erie, Pennsylvania.
0: We're talking with Robert Chatfield, the president and CEO of Free to Choose, the network, the media. Now you also have another nonprofit, so to speak, and I'm going to spell it for folks who may not hear it correctly. It's I Z Z I T .dot O R G. And that is a separate 501 C 3.
1: Isit.org is its own 501c3, and that is our educational affiliate. So we produce these wonderful programs, and we'll go back to We Hold These Truths, our one hour program on the Declaration of Independence. It's difficult for a teacher to show a one hour program in a classroom time. The classroom time slots just do not allow that much time. So we will take highlights from those programs and we'll make 15 to 20 minute videos. Out of the public television programs, we'll create a teacher's guide, we'll create an automatically graded quiz. We'll put together all sorts of other ancillary resources so that teachers can use parts of these programs in the classroom space. All that gets distributed through IsIt.org, which again is its own 501c3. And the difference, of course, is, is that IsIt is not exclusive to Free to Choose. So if uh, Free to Choose Media, as I said, is our, our film production company, mm-hmm. and we supply, uh, IsIt is the exclusive um, distributor of Free to Choose products, but IsIt can also take uh, film from other, uh, uh, produce production houses and create classroom videos out of those too.
0: And that's how you relate to the schools.
1: That's how we relate to the schools. As I said, our, our goal, everything is available at no cost to any educator. So if an educator still uses DVDs, we're happy to send a DVD to an educator. If an educator wants to call our customer support line, we offer customer support from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. during the school year. We are uh, absolutely there to serve educators.
0: Are there any other related organizations? And I'm going to allude to Friedman's, uh, if I say this right, CopyTaf. <laughs> Capitaf. <laughs> uh, Capitaf. Yeah, I was saying it in Latin, okay?
1: <laughs> so Capitaph is, uh, whereas isit.org is focused on Uh, primarily uh, high school, middle school educators, Capitaph serves colleges. And when I say serves colleges, we literally bring college students to Milton Friedman's summer home in Vermont for a week at a time Mm. to learn Milton Friedman in his own living room, which I think is pretty gosh darn cool. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, How extensive is that? Is that a highly budgeted uh, operation? How does that work? It's a 501c3?
1: so that's not, so we run that under Free to Choose Network. So as oh, I said, okay. it's different from Free to Choose Media because we're mm-hmm. obviously not producing uh, uh, documentary films there. Okay. But uh, Capitaf, the way it runs Tom, the most simple explanation I can give you is an alumnus from say Gannon University Uh, wants to uh, make sure that the students in Gannon's economics department have a uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, background with the ideas and philosophy of Milton Friedman. That donor will write us a check, or they could write the university a check, doesn't matter which way there, to go sponsor students to go spend a week at Capitaph. And so the students, as I said, are, are, are selected usually by professors. Uh, they come up and uh, they spend one week there. It's a residential colloquium. And we go chapter by chapter through capitalism and freedom or the book free to choose and uh, take field trips. It's a wonderful experience for the students, but it's uh, many have described it as life changing because most of what you learn uh, isn't taught in the classroom space. People might learn a little bit about Milton Friedman. They might learn about, you know, his economics is part of a class, but they don't learn about Milton as the person, mm-hmm. and they don't learn about how Milton approached public policy problems. In this concept of, again, people being free to choose, we we define that as as pursuit of happiness. And if you look at, you know, how 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 to best pursue happiness, it is by having the most options, the most choice. And uh, that means, effectively, the least amount of government, the least number of uh, restrictions put in your place to be able to reach happiness. We like to think people should be doing this in an ethical manner, Tom. So right. it's not just, you know, rolling through and uh, my, my pursuit of happiness should not also degrade your pursuit of happiness. Exactly. But, <laughs> but for us, as I said, that the uh, bringing the college students there is just a wonderful experience. And this past year, I think we filled seven weeks during the summer. Students everywhere from Australia to Guatemala, California, Florida, uh, uh, Michigan, all over the country came.
0: Now, this is uh, uh, being a marketing person. How do people become aware of all this? Is, Is this generally your outreach and effort? uh
1: well i was gonna say the three business lines are absolutely uh um different in terms of the outreach for them Mm -hmm. so obviously free to choose media's number one uh uh, outreach plan is public television we we want to get our programs on public television and that's how people find out about that after public television those programs then go on to youtube so uh, people can find the programs on YouTube or our website. Most people don't actually come to the network.org website. They'll find us uh, via YouTube. And therefore, we have to work th- that channel in terms of uh, our, our advertising content and how we promote that one. Visit.org is way different, though, Tom, because okay. there I've got to reach teachers. Oh. And, and you've got to go find where teachers are trying to find information themselves. And so for a lot of these, uh, as I said, we're, we're out there uh, trying to find where teachers are going to get professional development, where they're going to conferences. Uh, we'll, we'll use direct mail. We'll use uh, a direct uh, email. We will do all sorts of things to just specifically reach out to teachers.
0: I think something like half of public radio stations in the country are collegiate-owned television. I forgot what the ratio was. So being involved with PBS and public broadcasting, that sort of gives you an inroad to the teacher arena
1: uh it does it's not uh uh it, it, it we like to think that there's well we like to think our stuff stands on its own <laughs> uh, okay. if you uh mm-hmm. i was gonna say yep. obviously if you can say as seen on public television then the teachers yeah. uh, will feel a lot more confident in using that because they know it's been vetted somewhere else right one thing we're trying to do now though tom is, is we're trying to work directly with state departments of education or with professional associations. So, for example, we're doing some stuff in career tech education now, what you and I would have called vocational back in the day.
2: Wow, wow, interesting, have,
1: interesting. We have, I hope you'll see this, uh, around Erie, Pennsylvania, we have a giant RV that has turned into a mobile classroom called Is It Here? Wow, yes. And we are yes. going school to school to school, introducing students to opportunities in career tech education. Meanwhile, we're teaching teachers how to teach these students career readiness. All those skills these students are gonna need when they graduate high school, regardless of what they do for a career. So financial literacy, civic literacy, digital literacy, soft skills, you know, the uh, how to interview, how to dress for, how to show up for a job. All these things here that any student's going to need to be successful coming out. We're trying to teach with our Is It Here mobile classroom and as I said, you're going to see that at Erie Manufacturing Day. We're going to have a big, uh, big display there.
0: The material—do you collate it? Do you purchase it? Do you write it? How does that all work?
1: Um, For—is uh, it or for the uh, free to choose side?
0: Free to choose—we're familiar with that's production, mm-hmm. and of course great. your great creativity and writing Absolutely. skills and the uh, people you affiliate with—is
1: it? Uh, how does that work? So as I said, so is it will take things that were is it works with the film producers by the way. So oh, while we're okay. making the film, mm-hmm. we we determine what we want to pull out of that film to make as a classroom teaching video. Oh, okay. And so a, a, a fantastic example is in We Hold These Truths about the Declaration of Independence, there's a segment in there about the uh, the women's rights movement in Seneca Falls. So when we start sketching out the film, our isit.org team will say, "Hey, this might make for a nice teaching unit." And then at that point there, they'll uh, ask the film producers, can you make sure it says something about this? Can you make sure it says something about that when they're doing the filming? It may not make the film itself, by the way. So it might not make the documentary, but the uh, film producer will go out and effectively create that video product for the classroom space. And then our own internal team will, uh, using other teachers, I was going to say, so we'll go out and solicit the uh, um, uh, uh, advice and expertise of other teachers. We'll write a teacher's guide. And we'll come up with the uh, the, the questions, uh, quiz questions, uh, uh, vocabulary questions, discussion questions, all that stuff. And we put it together as a nice uh, teacher's guide package. And as I said, all of it's available at no cost at visit.org.
0: Let's talk about awards. IC9, Anthem, Templeton Freedom Award, Addy Award, Mpix, the Communicator Award. So your organization has stood the test of time and has run the gauntlet and has won some outstanding awards, as it says here.
1: And our producers are uh, as, as decorated. You know, we, uh, we work with producers who are the best in the business, we think. As I said, there's uh, while Free to Choose has never won an Emmy, we also really don't go out and compete for awards. So normally, as I said, when we're uh, given some kind of an award, it's, it's uh, uh, as a sideline of something we've done. We, we rarely actually go out soliciting awards. So, but our our producers, as I said, uh, we work with our executive producer, Tom Skinner has been with us for as long as Bob Chittister has been around. So this, this man's worked with the organization for about 40 years and he's an Emmy award winning producer.
0: I was looking at your board of directors. That's my next question. You hide out in Maine. I've been up in Maine many times. It's a fabulous area. Mm -hmm. Is that your residence and base or is that an Mm -hmm. office as well?
1: My residence in base and mostly because as Bob Chittister was based out of Erie, Pennsylvania, because that's where his family was. My family yeah. is in Maine. Therefore, I'm based out of here.
0: Talk about your board. How did they get involved? They're from all over the country. They're not just local folks or just New York or Pennsylvania folks.
1: How does that work? Uh, most are Milton Friedman fans. Uh, and uh, great uh, believers in the the philosophy of Milton Friedman. Uh, I'm going to actually give a shout out to one of our board members, Andy Walters. Andy is going to be unknown to your audience. He lives in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a manager of a, a, of a company that manufactures uh, small parts, mm-hmm. uh, which any manufacturing company in Erie is probably buying parts from this guy. But Andy Walters, when he was a teenager, wrote Milton Friedman a letter. And Milton Friedman responded. And Andy still had questions after Milton responded, so he wrote him another letter <laughs> as a follow-up. And Milton responded, and Andy and Milton, a high school student, became pen pals. I think that tells you a lot about Milton Friedman the person. And as I said, Andy became obviously a lifelong Milton Friedman fan and then uh, you know sought out our organization as who is keeping the the flame of Milton Friedman alive.
0: Well, you have folks from all over, small towns and large. And uh, let's see, four, eight, 11 board members. Do they get
1: together often? Once a year, we get together in person. We tend to pick Chicago uh, oh, we've yep, we've tried yep. Pittsburgh, by the way, but it's just uh, most of the uh, board members actually have some business in Chicago that they can do. So we usually pick that as a location. And then we have an executive committee of about half the board. And that executive committee also gets together in person. And we pick a sunnier climate. Although we're not talking like, you know, a Supreme Court justice sunny climate. We're talking, yes. you know, Texas, California, just Something just like someplace. place. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so if the weather's a little off, you still can get together. And, and there's always wonderful Erie, Pennsylvania if you get to that point. Now, the organization itself, it's been running pretty steady on an even keel. You've added isit.org. Any other plans coming up? Now, I know that you have a television series in the wings, and I was hoping that we could speak about it. It's called, I believe, Free to Speak. And I'm not going to read this because I'd rather have you tell us who all is involved, how did this come about,
1: and how is it available? might be one of the most important things we've done since Free to Choose. And uh, the the name Free to Speak is no accident. We wanted to make Mm -hmm. sure that we made that alignment between the two. Mm -hmm. But Free to Speak is a three-part series on free speech. And it really highlights, Tom, how free speech makes us human. We don't have any other real advantage to other creatures out there other than an ability to communicate. And so, uh, you know, any effort to try to squelch that is something that we believe needs to be explored. So we made a three-part series out of this. Our host is Nadine Strossen. She is the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, people will, will say, oh, well, Milton Friedman, you know, he was in the Ronald Reagan administration. You guys must be a bunch of conservatives and we're not. As I said, we, we we have a certain philosophy, which is people should be free, but we, we're not conservatives. Uh, and I think that that threw off some people that we'd have the former host or you know, the former president of the ACLU as the host of the program. Right. But she is an outspoken advocate for free speech. And I think that that's something we wanted to get across right there. The three episodes, mm-hmm. I uh, uh, I can't can't tell you when WQLN will air them, but I have great great uh, uh, confidence that WQLN oh, yeah. will be airing each of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will debut in October on public television as part of this, the three episodes stand alone. So as I said, I hope people watch them, but they don't have to watch them in any particular order. So if somebody misses episode one on television, they can go find it on the PBS app or go find it on our website. It, they don't need to follow along in an order. But the first one is uh, uh, in, in order of how we have them is Thought Police is about the history of government suppressing free speech. And, uh, uh, you know, we tried to not use Certain, you know, we we tried not to use a lot of what I'm going to call United States political stories for these. But if somebody wants to draw a parallel between something that has happened internationally, we really took a focus to say these issues are universal. This has, you know, it's not a left-right issue in the United States alone. These issues we're going to discuss are universal. And let's try to draw parallels uh, uh, universally about these things. The second episode we called One True Faith. And this was about religion and science and, uh, you know, throughout history. You know, uh, essentially a uh, scientist being squelched. scientists, not being able to, to uh, you know, my favorite story of this one, by the way, is a uh, uh, Barry Marshall who won the Nobel prize for discovering that ulcers were caused by bacteria instead of stress and spicy food. Yes. And, you know, when, again, you and I are old enough, Tom, to remember that every commercial that was on the air back then was about yes. acid blockers and yes. all these things that everybody needed to take that to, to control their ulcers. And as, uh, turns out you know not only did he destroy an industry but he found out the truth but the scientific community was going to run him out of town they didn't want to hear anything about it and so and so who decides what's the truth in science and same with religion we think that's an interesting interesting episode Mm -hmm. the last episode is called the speech we hate Mm -hmm. and this is about arts and entertainment mostly and uh we look at this one here there's a lot In terms of uh, all of our episodes, people are going to find a a lot of threads with regards to uh, literacy and books. And I think that that's, uh, I wanted to point out one little thing, which is the original host for the program was actually going to be PJ O'Rourke. And then PJ had the audacity to go and die on us during the, uh, the production. So uh, he's a wonderful friend, by the way. And he, uh, he he would appreciate the way I just said that. So uh, yes. uh, but as I said, PJ Stamp uh, is all over this project in terms of us trying to find stories that we could juxtapose. So that if you say, well, I'm for free speech, but not all free speech, well, you're a hypocrite. Create if you favor one kind of speech and not another. And that's really the theme that runs through all three episodes.
0: You're doing other things. Uh, You have a project on Twitter, I believe. Um, Uh, Or should we say
1: X? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of shorts that we're doing. Uh, We have started working with Steve Forbes. And Steve Forbes is, we are creating with Steve Forbes a series called Steve Forbes on Achievement. And Steve is highlighting lesser known entrepreneurs that have changed our lives and most people don't even have a clue who they were. And it's little things like, you know, who invented the container ship? which now makes international trade, uh, you know, it, it, this is what brings you the goods from across the sea. Uh, beforehand, it was a, a very labor-intensive process to load and unload ships. The uh, advent of the container ship is really what brought international trade to the forefront. He takes a look at uh, all sorts of, We he even did Barbie, by the way, we, we were ahead of the curve in terms of the uh, Barbie movie, but you know, uh, a lot of what he looks at is: is, are there free market lessons that are applicable? Uh, across all, you know, any industry, just in terms of life lessons. And he noted that, you know, the story of of the Barbie doll, if you will, effectively was, well, I mean, dolls existed forever, uh, but there was uh, mostly they were the baby dolls, you know, so the girl would take care of a baby, if you will. And so Barbie was just a different spin of an aspirational doll. And as I said, and it led, of course, to its whole cottage industry, but there's a very interesting story behind the founder of Barbie. And I would tell you that story, but I would much rather you go to I-Z-Z, It.org forward slash Forbes and go find is it.org Forbes and go watch some of these great two minute videos.
0: Absolutely great idea. Well, we're just about out of time. What do you see coming up for your organization, say, in the next six months to a year? I shouldn't even ask you that because you have so much in the way of human benefit, community benefit, countrywide benefit on your website. You could just sit here and watch these things and listen to these things forever, and they're all great. They're all educational. Anything that you would like to point out or highlight uh, for the audience?
1: A few things coming up. We're actually creating an educational video for Is It on the Electoral College? We think it's one of the most misunderstood things out there. Excellent. And there's a reason we have the Electoral College, and it is because the United States was founded on compromise. And this whole concept of uh, small states versus big states, rural versus urban, uh, all, all this stuff existed beforehand. And so we, uh, we we're pointing out things about the Electoral College in terms of why we have that system. And it's a uh, Truly, we try to, all of the stuff we do in terms of uh, our production for the school classrooms especially, we're not out there trying to brainwash somebody, we're not out there trying to put together something that says, oh, you should think like this. Mm -hmm. We try to get people to think about why certain things exist. We're trying to get students to ask those questions for themselves as, why does something exist? and if if they do that, then we've done our job. So, as I said, I think this is a great video in terms of just the timeliness for it, because not a lot of people understand the Electoral College and and why it was created.
0: A hearty thanks to you, Robert Chatfield, President and CEO of the Free to Choose Network, and a shout out to your wonderful staff, your team. I see some outstanding names, and of course, they have a lot of responsibilities. What a great organization you have, and best to you in the upcoming year. Looking forward to hearing and even seeing you in the the near future. Thank you for visiting the program today.
1: Tom, thanks so much for having me on. Welcome to Week Question
0: and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 20th year, hard to believe. And over the years, we've had some great guests, one in particular that I've had on a long, long time ago and and again recently, Dr. Jerry Clark. You are at Gannon University right now, Dr. Clark.
3: Yes, I am. I'm an associate professor there and trying to help all the new law enforcement folks coming out and doing the best job they can.
0: So to get people tuned in how long have you been there
3: so i got here in 2012 Mm -hmm. so about 11 years now and still have the energy every day to do my eight o'clock tuesday thursdays and get them all excited if i can and show them the passion that it takes to do this field
0: i was fortunate enough not too long ago and people can find the interview at wqln forward slash we question one word. And uh, we were talking about a case that made the national news happened right here in Erie, Pennsylvania. And it was sort of, uh, well, you don't want to be famous for different things. You would like to be well known for your good work and your outreach as what you are doing now. But what brought you to light as we discussed in our last interview was the, can I call it the pizza bomber case? Is that a good description?
3: Sure, Tom. That's what everyone seems to recognize it as. FBI knew it as Collar Bomb FBI Major Case Number 203, but it's uh, really known out in the community as as the pizza bomber.
0: I like the Collar Bomb FBI Major Case 203 better. And, uh, yes. It has a much more <laughs> officious name. And with that in mind, it was called the Collar Bomb case for a very specific reason. And the story could go on forever, but if you would just throw another synopsis up as to how this happened, boy, I'm asking you to put three hours into like uh, a couple of minutes here.
3: Yeah, Uh, it's so challenging because it's such a complex matter, but basically it had never happened before in the history of the FBI that an individual uh, walked into a bank wearing a live device that detonates during the course of the robbery resulting in death. And so that's why it was elevated to such status at the major case 203, because it had never really happened before. And so uh, August 28, 2003, like you said, just over 20 years ago, Brian Wells walked into the bank wearing a a device, said he needed $250,000 in in cash, and that he was forced to rob the bank and then go on a series of scavenger hunt stops to get the keys to unlock the collar, holding the bomb around his neck and he said he was a pizza delivery driver and delivered pizzas to a tower site uh where this group of individuals accosted him told him to wear the device it wasn't real it wouldn't go off and then uh if if he got done he would uh be able to get some money for doing the doing the robbery so that was the very beginning of of the of the plan Then three days later, a second pizza delivery driver dies of an overdose from the same pizza shop. Uh, His name was Robert Panetti, and Robert Panetti died. And then three weeks later, Bill Rothstein, who lives immediately adjacent to the tower site location, calls in 911 saying he's got a dead body in the freezer Mm -hmm. in his garage and that Marjorie D. Armstrong killed him. So my job as the FBI uh, lead investigator on the case was to link those three deaths into one big scheme, and that's what we did.
0: Before we go too far into this uh, Pizza Bomber case, I believe you have a book out on it, am I correct?
3: Sure, yes. Uh, Ed Palatella Mm -hmm. from the Erie Times News, an outstanding journalistic reporter, and I wrote uh, and co-authored Pizza Bomber, The Untold Story of America's Most Shocking Bank Robbery. And the reason we did that, and I'd never in my wildest dreams Tom would ever think I would write a book. But as it turned out, I was getting so many questions and there were so many things that were unsettled with the case that I thought it would be best to just get it in some written version so that people could understand how the investigation went. And now law enforcement officers use that, you know, to teach at different academies. And I use it here again in University to teach students on how to investigate cases. And so it's become a wildly
0: popular book. And Ed Pelletella was on the air the first time uh, we spoke here. And he's just an excellent journalist. He's still working, right? He's working with you. Is he still, has he come up to my age as he retired? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's still
3: at it at the Erie Times News doing amazing things, um, all investigative reporting. And then he and I went on to co author three other books after that just because of the success of the first one and that a publisher came to us for a three book series. So we ended up uh, doing three other books um, together.
0: Well, before we go into those, and I'm, they're fascinating, so we'll go across those if it's okay with you. But first, I want to talk. Just uh, Jerry Clark, Dr. Clark, a little bit about you. You hold a a B.A. in psychology, master's in forensic psychology, a Ph.D. in public safety with a, a specialization in criminal justice. But your career before that was with the FBI. Could you tell us a little bit about your career there?
3: Sure, absolutely. I'm an eerie guy. Mm -hmm. So I was born and raised in Erie, Erie, went to Cathedral Prep. Um, You know, my whole life, uh, I was interested in law enforcement and specifically to work for the FBI. And everyone knows out there in the field that, you know, you don't walk into the FBI and say, hey, I'm Jerry Clark. I'm here. So it took me several steps to get there, including working as a parole officer here in Erie County, where I started, and then uh, getting my first federal law enforcement job with NCIS as a special agent uh, assigned to Philadelphia division of of that agency. And then I did that for about two years. Mostly I was overseas uh, doing Mm. protective service details, guarding foreign dignitaries for the United States government and DEA called. And so uh, I was like, this is fantastic. I'm going to you know, head toward the Department of Justice, went back to the Academy at Quantico, became uh, a DEA special agent assigned to the Cleveland Resident Agency out of the Detroit division of DEA and spent the next five years hunting and, and working the highest level drug trafficking cases, uh, really worked some fantastic cases that took me really all over uh, the world. Uh, and then... Right in the middle of that career, uh, FBI finally gave me the call. And so I don't know if, if, and, you know, young energy had me do it. I went okay. back down to the academy uh, for another six months and became a uh, DEA or a, an FBI special agent and was assigned to the Cincinnati division of the FBI working on a fugitive task force, which was a violent crime fugitive task force so anything fugitive kidnapping bank robberies violent crime associated and spent the next 6 years doing that until i finally got on a list in the fbi you get on a what's called an op list an office of preference And I wanted to come back to Pittsburgh Division Erie Resident Agency. And I got transferred back to Pittsburgh and then began working in Erie thinking, oh, my gosh, after all those years of, uh, you know, working cases, I'll probably be home doing something pretty quiet. And then that's when uh, August 28th, 2003 hit and I was involved in that case.
0: That's that's an incredible story. Twenty years later, though, well, maybe not 20 years later, subsequent to that flurry of activity right here in Erie. You and Ed got together and you wrote a book, and the title is Pizza Bomber, The Untold Story of America's Most Shocking Bank Robbery. Could you give us a little synopsis of that? How did that come about? What provoked you to write the book? How did you and Ed get together? How did that work for you?
3: Yeah. So when I was uh, working in Erie, my supervisor at the time got transferred to Pittsburgh to become an assistant special agent in charge. And so I became the acting supervisor of the Erie FBI office. And that's when you have contact with a lot of the you know, media folks, because if you're in the FBI, you're not allowed to even discuss anything with the media, unless you're at the supervisory level. So that's when Ed would call me uh, from the newspaper for information related to a case or anything that I could tell him. And Ed, I always found to be really an outstanding, you know, investigative journalist where he's always digging, always looking, but we established a relationship there where he knew his job, I knew mine, but we together would trust each other enough to, you know, Uh, help each other in certain situations. Well, then I ended up having to retire from the FBI. And and, uh, Ed kept his job at the Eerie Times News and came to me and said, you know, that would be interesting to hear more about this case. Would you ever be interested? And I said, Ed, I have it in my, you know, in my brain, but I'm not that talented of a writer like you that I know how to get it onto a page, and and that's when we just started talking, and over a year or so, we started writing things down, and next thing you know, we had a publisher, and off it went, and it just went to really terrific places.
0: Well, maybe you don't consider yourself an author, but you're an excellent spokesperson, and there's a good degree of excitement in your voice. This is a career that's very, very interesting to you. Let me just say, emotionally valid for you. Could you talk about that? I mean, a lot of folks give up, so to speak. You just kept working harder and harder.
3: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that because it means a lot to me. And I have this unbelievable passion uh, for the field. And I know that, you know, what stands between chaos in society is, is law enforcement. And uh, I really feel that law enforcement never get the credit they deserve for all the really, really good things that they do and go unnoticed. And we only hear about the bad things or a mistake that somebody makes. And, and all those other confrontations and uh, times you have meetings with people and investigators uh, statutes that you put together and all the good that you do goes completely unnoticed and so when I teach these students today I'm in the classroom with all this passion, uh, like I'm still doing it. Yes. I mean i'm I'm just that thrilled about what it is that we do and i I just want to make sure that people know and that I train the next future law enforcement officers to always be out there doing the best they can.
0: Ironically, you mentioned NCIS and I had no clue. I, I glance at the television program, which I think there's a series of them. Uh, oh, yeah. going back to how you Spend your time educating college students and the public as well. How accurate are those programs? I'm sure they're fluffed up, as you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the basic mechanisms—I'm sure you watch that and go, "Whoa, we we didn't do yeah. that," or "Oh, maybe we did that."
3: Uh, uh, yeah. No.
0: What's your perspective? Number
3: one, it, well, Tom, that's so a great question because I, I teach that in in investigation because I have a class called Investigative Concepts, and you go through from when you walk on the scene of a crime mm-hmm. all the way to trial and everything that you do in between. And so the students, I tell them, listen, on these television shows, you can go from, you know, A to Z very quickly with no, no real knowledge of what goes on in between there. And I say there's several investigative steps that need to be taken. There's rules and regulations you have to follow. And there's beyond a reasonable doubt is a very high burden, which it should be. We don't want innocent people mm-hmm. in jail. So you have to be exactly perfect on everything you're doing on the investigative side. So I take that very seriously. And I even have them write a paper where they watch one of those television shows. Mm. I don't care what it is, CSI or uh, Criminal Minds. And I want them to say investigatively, well, first they say what the crime was, how they investigated it, the investigative steps they took and then the end and how they got to it and what the person did and if they pled guilty or if they uh, went to trial and i want to know so they pay attention to how off those shows are in the investigative steps that it took to get it completed so uh they they, it's an eye-opener for them and every time i read one it's an eye-opener for me
0: can i ask a question when you are done with a case or even while you're working on one What uh, is your responsibility to the court? How does that work? So it's
3: very interesting. A lot of times uh, people who aren't from the field don't realize the law enforcement side on the investigative side. So the police agencies, whether that's state, federal, local, whatever it is, your job is to investigate the crime. So you then bring all the material and the evidence to the prosecutor. The prosecutor decides whether that's a district attorney, an assistant district attorney, or on the federal side, an AUSA, which is United assistant United States attorney. Mm-hmm. You bring that evidence to them, and they decide what the is gonna be charged and who's gonna be charged. So you often think that it's police making that decision. It really isn't. It's it's the investigative arm that, that collects all the evidence, but it's the prosecutorial arm that's gonna actually take that to court because they're the one that's gonna to have to satisfy that burden of beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high level for for law enforcement to reach. But again, rightfully so, we don't want innocent people in jail.
0: With that said, do you end up in court? Did you end up in court a good deal?
3: Absolutely, so if you mm-hmm. investigate that case, you're gonna go testify to what it is you did. And a lot of times I tell these students your case Becomes what's on trial, Mm. how you put it together, how you interviewed somebody, how you collected evidence, how you uh, interview or interrogated. All of that becomes challenged by a defense attorney who's trying to throw reasonable doubt into the jury on how that person uh, was charged or what they did related to the crime. So we call it culpability. And so if they can make that determination that you made a mistake or that their person was, you know, not not guilty, uh, they're going to put it out there. So, yes, I testify, for example, in the pizza bomber case, I think I was on the stand six hours. So wow. everything related to what it is I did uh, was was challenged.
0: It seems like that today's hours many, many months to accomplish, yet you had to compress that into six hours. To me, that's a lot of time on the stand, yet still in all with all our discussions and uh, different discussions I've heard about your your case, it it seems like that would not be enough. That's just an opinion. Am I close?
3: Yeah, it really is tough for, and and really when you think about it, what I'm trying to do is just lay out the investigative side and piece to every other in witness that's going to be called so we we had 51 witnesses my my role was just to say how all of those witnesses played a role in the investigative piece that i did so it was a three-week trial it actually took three weeks but my, my piece of it and my explanation of who we're going to call and why they're important that was the part that took about six hours to do
0: And when it was all done, you ended up, rightfully so in my opinion, you wrote a book, and uh, everything is in there?
3: On the investigative side, yeah, we tried to put everything in there.
0: The feelings,
3: uh, the emotions, the passions, the thing that go along with an investigation— that a lot of times, again, you don't see on television the effect that it has on not only the victims of the case, which we already know. I mean, the, the Wells family, the Panetti family, the Roden family, who the person that ended up in the freezer, they all are dealing with their own emotional trauma of having to lose a loved one and all the thing that goes on with being a victim in a case. And I teach my students now, you pay attention to what victims go through because victims are, are really what make our system work. And if you're not paying attention to their feelings, that's a problem. But I also talk about the effect it has on law enforcement and the stress and the amount of hours and the way uh, you're away from home and, and the effect it has on your own personal life and family can also be challenging. So that's why law enforcement groups like to listen to how you know we did what we did. And that's why I thought it was important to get it in a book.
0: So the students find this of great value, but let's take one step closer to the case, the jury. That that has to be a real stress. People are stressed being called to jury duty, let alone something that may take three weeks out of their life. Yet, it's important that it get done.
3: You know, that's why our system works, Tom. It really does. It works because we have a jury of our peers selected by both the prosecution and defense in, you know, what we call Bordier which mm-hmm. is the jury selection process, mm-hmm. and we then picked those jurors to help us you know, make sure that we followed all the rules, did, and, and you know, a lot of people sometimes say, oh, you must have come from the prosecution side, you don't like defense. No, I, I love defense attorneys and prosecutors because that's what makes our system work. If somebody's not there to defend the process, then we wouldn't have the beautiful system that we have in the United States today.
0: And as you were working, that was your challenge subsequently to get everything done exactly right. That's what I'm hearing.
3: Oh, absolutely right on it. If you, you know, went around a boundary or or obfuscated a rule or, you know, even if you're getting to the end, which you knew to be right, that's not the way our system works. And if you get evidence collected, inadmissible or illegally obtained... You know, that's that's not the way our system works. they are And so you have to stay within every one of the, the boundaries that our system has put in place to make sure everybody has a fair and free
0: chance. I'm feeling like I would like to take one of your courses, if not all of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, your perspective is very good. Now, did that ever make a media production? Did it turn into a TV show or a film in any way?
3: So... You know, when Netflix came out with Evil Genius, they came to us, myself and Jason Wick uh, from ATF, and uh, Jason and I became like brothers in this case because of all the things we had to do together, along with the Pennsylvania State Police and the Erie Police Department. I mean, so many people and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Distance Attorney's Office, so many people, Erie Bomb Squad, they put effort into this case. But when they came to us, They said, Hey, we're interested in in telling the story. We had two real objectives. Uh, One, that you're going to show Erie in a positive light Mm -hmm. because Erie is my home and where I was born and raised, and I love Erie. And so I didn't want some darkened looking, you know, uh, terrible city that, you know, bad things happen all the time. I told them good things happen in and or, or I should say it this way: bad things happen in good places. Yes, and that's that's why I I, I said make sure you show Eerie that way, and they they actually did. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I said was stick to the stick to the truth. And they did a really good job up until episode four, mm. uh, the last ten minutes, oh. where they strayed off. And they did that uh, where they took some license so that they could work on Evil Genius Two. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and that's sort of what happened. But that's okay. And I try to say to myself, hey, it was entertaining and it was good. And they, they did a very good job initially. Uh, and then they sort of lost their way. Since then, I've done, I can't tell you, countless national shows. Uh, Dateline and Snapped and, and Mysteries at the Museum and uh, Price of Duty and CNN. And So I've done a number of shows. And they're all, I, I, I still try to keep those two two caveats that they try to keep Yuri yeah. nice and stick to the truth.
0: You're going to get your second degree in the media after being <laughs> exposed to all these different types of people. And, of course, on a national level, right? These mm-hmm. these were big networks that decided to come talk with you. Yes. Yeah. Let, let me go uh, one step further, if I could. You have three other books. Can you um, mention what came after The Pizza Bomber?
3: Sure. So the second book that we really, really uh, got interested in was because the Pizza Bomber really focused on the investigation, we wanted to talk about the characters and specifically Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Mm. So we wrote a book called Mania mm. and Marjorie Deal Armstrong Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer. And that's our second book and that it, it was so well received too because it talks a lot about the psychology that's involved in in this case and specifically with Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who killed men at least five uh, and and was a an out an out serial killer. So female serial killer. So that made her very unique. And then uh, I love bank robberies, obviously, because I did so mm-hmm. many of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, that uh, we wrote a book called History of Heist Bank Robberies in America. And we started from the very first bank robbery uh, in Philadelphia and went all the way to some of the modern ones with the monikers that the FBI gives some of those like the old Geezer Bandit and the Mad yeah. Hatter, all these different uh, type bank robberies. And that one's a really good read, too. And then the last one we did was called On the Lamb, since I spent six Six Years Hunting Fugitives, and it's <sighs> called On the Lamb, A History of Hunting Fugitives in America. And uh, we talk all about what it is to, to hunt people who don't want to be caught and the psychology that goes on with uh, a fugitive.
0: I think maybe you may not even remember it, but I remember the television show, The Fugitive. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Or did you see that, if I can? Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. Was that close? Exactly the movie. Was that the cl- movie
3: with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Uh, oh, I loved it. And that, uh, okay. Dr. Kimball, right? Was Yes. A, and and so when you, oh, I just have been fascinated with people and, and wanting to be on the run and, and the things that they do to get away with uh, being caught. And that the whole psychology of that. I'm a big psych nut, obviously, with, Mm-hmm. the forensic psychology background. And I just love to know why people do what they do. And so all those books address some of the why. So, yeah, I, I think the fugitive one is is, uh, is pretty interesting, too.
0: I'm going to back up for a half a second. You provoked me to ask this question. You mentioned many bank robberies. I was thinking, ah, oh, here and there, someone's not doing well or someone's planned something unusual. But you sounded as if this was a more common occurrence.
3: Oh, my gosh. Back in the day, Tom, when I was back in Dayton, Ohio, on a fugitive uh, task force, violent crime squad, Mm -hmm. Dayton, Ohio, a small, well, it's not small in any, I mean, it's three three times the size of Erie, but Mm -hmm. 750,000 people. We had 78 robberies in a year, bank robberies in a year. And so uh, I, because I was assigned to that squad, would be assigned you know, any bank robbery that came through. So we were working bank robberies, like I said, I did that six solid years. So that's probably 400 right there. And and then I think of the other ones that I did uh related to when I was uh, uh, in Erie and, and other places. So, yeah, I'm looking at hundreds of bank robberies. And I've, I've been in ones that are professional robbers, you know, that vault the counter, get back into the vault and then try to get big money, you know, uh, I've had professionals with countdown timers and scanners and stole a car before they got there to drop it off. And then, uh, you know, one shot uh, at a teller during the course of the robbery, it grazed her head because she wasn't moving fast enough. So I I had a number
0: of bank robberies.
3: The one that certainly sticks with me is the pizza bomber, but uh, I was uh, doing those on a regular basis.
0: As you uh, sit in your office and teach students, basically everything you've learned from your career besides the curriculum uh, demanded by the university, by the college, What's your next big thing or are you' gonna try and after all this wind down a little bit?
3: You know I I, I keep thinking that I can slow down, Tom, but I, for some reason, uh, five years ago I bought Fisher security. Oh,
0: I was just that's where uh, I was going yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. So <laughs> uh, a uniform patrol car on on guard service and so I now have uh, 80 employees you know, supervising uh, different sites all throughout Erie and Pittsburgh. So I've got that running. My son, Michael, now is is running uh, at the business end of Fisher for me, mm-hmm. and Fisher Security is just booming. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, when you think about this, you used to have a couple places that were even sacred from criminals, right? Mm-hmm. like churches or schools. And now I'm getting calls uh, regularly. Hey, can you come look at our church for security? Can you come look at our school? And um, there's just no place anymore where you can absolutely be lax on security. And so, uh, unfortunately, Fisher has boomed as society has, has gotten to the place where, um, you know, criminals just have no boundaries.
0: I'm sorry to hear that all this is happening in society. On the other hand, I'm very glad that you're uh, applying your expertise and have created or, or are managing, running a, an organization. I'm sorry you're growing so fast. Don't take that. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, don't take that. You're right. Yeah. Uh, but with that, it also says that you and, and folks, law enforcement and the legal field and our judicial system, are taking the effort to help citizens live a safe and happy life. With that, what's your next big project?
3: You know, I'm going to keep focusing on on training these students right now. Mm-hmm. I've talked to Ed about, you know, looking at other uh, material for, for other book uh, that we might be thinking about. And then I can't announce it yet too deeply, but mm-hmm. we're working uh, uh, with some really national media mm-hmm. to turn some of my life work into uh true crime shows so i can't quite get there yet without their approval and announcement but i can tell you some good things are coming
0: with you involved i'm sure they'll not be these sensational comic book type things i hope that you can bring to our society and our community some some wonderful educational opportunities and also maybe to provoke young people uh, as you do in your college courses to to get involved in a career as yours
3: Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. If anybody's listening that's contemplating, this is the most rewarding thing you could possibly do. And I I can't explain that enough, uh, how rewarding this field is. Uh, Even if you feel like you did something really small that day, it was really big to somebody. And it means a lot to what you do. And I got to tell you, uh, one quick anecdote story. Mm -hmm. My brother, Greg, Mm-hmm. Lives in Cleveland, Ohio. He's a CEO and he's very, very financially successful. Well, he's an Erie kid too, because he grew up with us. uh you know, in Erie, and he called me one day and he goes, "Hey, Jerry, I was just on Go Erie, and I saw you walking this child predator into the jail." Mm. And I said, "Oh, did you see that, Greg?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah." 30,000 pictures of child pornography and you arrested them. And I said, yeah, yeah, we, we did today. And he goes, you know what? And this is so true, Tom, I can't even make this up. He said, you know what? I made a lot of money today, but I did nothing as important as what you did. I I I said to myself, Oh my God, Greg, you almost made me slide out of my chair because I didn't think of it that way, you know, but so, so to anybody listening, That little thing that you do, meaning keep our society safe, means a lot to somebody. So always contemplate and think about it as a career. And uh, if I can help you in any way, you let me know.
0: Jerry Clark, Dr. Gerald Clark, thank you so much for taking uh, part of your valuable day to chat with us again. I'm going to invite you to come back a fourth time because your stories are overwhelming, but they're also educational, and they also give a more accurate perspective of what law enforcement and what society really is all about. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this.
2: Tom, it's always a pleasure, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime.